Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Koto tato el hori hori tine. He hotaka e paniki te pataio, te taio, me te kopapa o te ora, kitareo irarangi o aotearoa. You're with Our Changing World on Radio New Zealand National and now offsetting losses in biodiversity. Biodiversity continues to decline in New Zealand and worldwide, and one method governments and companies use to mitigate impacts from development projects is the offsetting of biodiversity losses in one area with biodiversity gains in another. Veronica meets Environmental Defence Society's policy analyst Marie Brown to discuss how well this works in practice. Well, the purpose of a biodiversity offset is to address loss of nature in a development context. So what that essentially amounts to in practice is that a developer will agree to a compensation kind of conservation program. And the purpose, the nature and the scale of that conservation program will be broadly equivalent to what has been lost in the development process. Biodiversity offsets are separate from the usual approaches to mitigation. The main change is no net loss. So the, the so that's the overall goal, to somehow not lose difference. anything. Yep. So trade-offs are normal in planning. You trade-off values all the time. That's common. Um, mitigation compensatory kind of actions are also normal. They're quite quite common under the RMA. They're regularly required by councils or offered by developers. That's nothing new. Biodiversity offsets are sort of like dressed up mitigation. They're given a goal of no net loss. So the idea is that the developer aims for no net loss and in some situations will even aim for net gain. And they will um, tend to try and demonstrate no net loss and that gives their proposal a certain level of credibility and social acceptance, and the decision-maker will consider that as one of the range of things that, that are considered within a consenting process. So essentially they're a swap. In other kinds of swaps, you could just pay for it, but that would not apply in this context because you really need to replace ecosystems, I guess. The payment um, as a biodiversity offset is, is a tricky one. It does happen called financial offsets. They're quite risky because you are essentially what you're doing is you're converting natural capital, uh, which you're going to kind of lose anyway, uh, into financial capital. And the key thing is to make sure it then gets converted back again, um, not just to natural capital, but to something that is similar, you know, along the usual goals of like for like. Ideally equivalent in value. That's right, yeah. So equivalency is necessary to achieve no net loss. That's a, another issue again. But the financial offsets, it depends on how it's implemented. Sometimes it's a better idea for it to be a financial offset if the proponent of the development is not um, keen, willing or able to engage with a conservation project. Um, an equivalent project can be costed and another organisation or agency identified to carry it out and then it becomes a cheque-writing exercise. Uh, however, the gains at the end are more secure. So it's not always a bad thing. 
Um, but in some instances it ends up being cash for damage and you have a standard policy which says if you're going to destroy X amount of habitat it will cost you this much per hectare and of course that very quickly goes awry because it's simply factored in as a compliance cost within the development and people forget about the the point of offsets as being the very final option of the mitigation hierarchy where avoidance is always your best bet and then you sort of look to remedy the damage that you've caused you look to mitigate it and then you come in with something much more rigorous in the form of an offset and, and it's supposed to be a last resort but cash policies tend to speed the process towards the offset end of the spectrum. What's the legal situation for this or the policy situation for this because it's obviously embedded in a bigger international context but specifically in New Zealand are there any requirements that are firm enough to actually enforce this? There's certainly a lot more than there used to be. Um, just five years ago there wasn't really any guidance or any policy. It's increasing, it's still not mandatory anywhere though. So there is always the option of a negotiated outcome via you know, mitigation, uh, which is that you take the goal of no net loss generally off the table and it becomes a social decision, like in fact all planning decisions are. But now several regional policy statements and regional plans have enshrined the idea um, and the Department of Conservation for a number of years worked on um, a cross-departmental research project which developed a set of guidelines for good practice biodiversity offsets uh, which was subsequently endorsed by a number of other areas of government and that was released last year. It stopped short of policy advice, so it intentionally ring fences away from policy advice uh, for all kinds of probably kind of predictable reasons. So what New Zealand really needs is, is statutory guidance and um, some more clarity on when offsets are appropriate and when they're not, <laughs> which is probably even more important, is when are they not appropriate, um, and what are the operating parameters that proponents have to, have to meet in order for it to be seen as a, an acceptable exchange. And then there's a range of things that we need to work on in terms of monitoring and compliance and really securing those gains long term. Can I get you to talk a bit about the first part of this? When is offsetting necessary and when it's not? I suspect you've got a few ideas on, <laughs> on that alone. Sure. Well, my ideas on, on when offsetting is not appropriate apply also to mitigation and, in fact, to, to development full stop. Um, the international literature focuses on the concept of limits to offsetting, uh, which denotes that you know, uh, biodiversity that's um, irreplaceable, vulnerable, rare, so forth, um, shall not be the subject of an offset. So how that ends up being articulated in policy is that there are limits to what you can offset. Um, but in practice, people go, OK, well, I won't do an offset then. I'll just do a negotiated outcome. And I sort of miss the point, really. The point is that it shouldn't be impacted because it can't be replaced. So there should so, be no development if right. it affects that kind of biodiversity. So we have no thresholds, really, in New Zealand for that. Uh, we have some proposed ones. You know, we have some suggested thresholds. Um, but our experience to date is that they're commonly watered down in practice. The best thing we could do was to set some bottom lines and some no-goes because the, the key thing with offsets is that whether or not you should impact the values that are being impacted is what you would call a gateway test. Um, and if you proceed 
and damage values that can't be replaced. It doesn't much matter what your decision is afterwards. The reality is you've lost those values probably forever. And that gateway test is not enshrined in our law at all and, and arguably needs to be. Are there any examples in the New Zealand context that you could hold up as the way to do it? There's certainly a number of um, very strong attempts, but um, there's none that I would necessarily signal as being certain successes. That's not because there hasn't been enormous effort behind them, but because ecological timelines are quite different to human timelines, and some of the damage that has occurred has been more than intergenerational. 500 year old habitat that's been removed when will we know if it's been successful well <laughs> similar timeline you know so it is hard to confirm success there's certainly a number of projects that I wouldn't name them because there's that's always complex every project is different and has particular sort of contextual issues that not everyone's aware of but there are certainly some very committed um, companies and developers who do do the right thing and they are aware that you know, their development is an impact on the public good and they take full responsibility. Of course, for all of those, there are others with a very different perspective. So overall, an enhanced policy context will be a really useful operating minimum for the good guys and it will give the bad guys a goal and a really crucial goal. And some enforcement behind it or enforcement options. So the enforcement in normal practice, so most of these sorts of exchanges happen under the RMA. Um, they are used under the Conservation Act the Wildlife Act, um, and I presume in time will be used under the EEZ Act for the ocean. In the case of the Conservation Act and the Wildlife Act, they tend to be less transparent processes, so people aren't so aware of what's going on there. Under the RMA, there's a very clear enforcement pathway. Um, Section 338 of the Act has very clear provision for enforcement and very heavy penalties, so um, whatever the decision maker chooses to allow, they have full right tend you know, generally to follow up, providing they've um, been clever and the conditions that are included within the consent are, are clear and enforceable, then there's no reason why that shouldn't be subject to enforcement in the case of non-compliance. What we find, though, is that um, compliance tends to be where everything falls apart because, and this is what my PhD focused on, a lot of energy goes into the front part of the process, into the, the arguing and the litigation and, and the writing piles and piles of paper, um, but as soon as the first sod is turned, there's an awful lot less people watching. And so that means that the loss to nature is sometimes silent. So it can be significant, but it can be silent. I identified in my um, PhD that less than half of ecological conditions in resource consents were, were met, which is a fairly worrying figure. Um, you would expect it, or you would hope that it would be very much higher, um, because they're all there to compensate for a loss that has no doubt occurred. So the only consents looked at were the ones that had been exercised. So that's what we tend to find in offsets, is we have a certain um, we have a certain loss and an uncertain gain, and the risk really sits on the public interest in, in sort of nature protection, and uh, really on the proponent of development and, and not also on the agency, because there's quite limited accountability for agencies generally. So what you're saying is that fewer than half of those conditions were met but then also not checked on whether they were met because otherwise enforcement would have been an option? I think people have this um, mistaken assumption that if a council is aware of a non-compliance that it takes action. Um, that, that, in fact, I, I'd suggest that's probably the exception, not the rule. For all kinds of reasons, enforcement is not a popular route. 
um, for a council that acts in the community in a number of different uh, ways that enforcement is a very negative interface with the community and councils tend to be reluctant to go down that pathway. There's quite substantial risks as well. If you lose, <laughs> if you don't prove and you have costs awarded against you, the burden of proof is quite high. The threshold of, of being able to you know, prosecute someone is quite high. Uh, and then there's just the simple fact of having staff and managerial support to even carry out the function. So there's all kinds of reasons why non-compliance is not followed up. Um, there have, of course, been loads of instances in which it has been, and they've generally been quite successful. But that does mean that people get away with it, or development projects get away with it. Yeah, well, the lack of regulator oversight is a real concern. So if you have a high level of non-compliance and limited evidence of agencies going, hang about, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? You should be doing this. Um, then it becomes a calculated risk over time. If the developer feels that the chances of being prosecuted are very low and the cost of the compensation activity is very high, then they're willing to take the risk, you know, because chances are, um, in many cases, their fine will be much lower than the cost of the activity that they were meant to do. So what you're really calling for is a central government initiative to put in place so that local authorities have something to work from that has stronger teeth? Definitely. So there's lots of staff in local and regional authorities who want to ask for good things, but they need something to hang their hat on. And in the absence of really strong guidance and, and sort of directive guidance in the form of, say, a national policy statement or a national environmental standard, they're often left to fight their own battles with the uh, sometimes a very unwilling developer. Um, so it would be a good idea, I think, to give them some um, give them some bottom lines to work with and some sense of what our expectations as a society are of them. Uh, so that's what guidance would would achieve. And the other thing is, I think, you know, part of the problem is that a lot of councils don't actually carry the staff to apply sufficient rigour to these applications. To bring you right to the start of all of this, the way things are now, we are continuing to lose biodiversity to development, not just because the offsetting doesn't work, but on all sorts of levels. Yeah, definitely. So the way that we are managing development is likely locking in decline of biodiversity at the moment. So we need some some hard work around the tools that we're using and also the matters that we identified in vanishing nature of uh, the need to better value um, the natural world, the need to recognise it in markets, the need to address um, agency capture and make sure that our institutions are doing their job um, and the need to develop the tools where there are gaps so where policy could make a difference it's actually fit for purpose. There was Marie Brown from the Environmental Defence Society. She's also a co-author of the recent book Vanishing Nature and there's more information about that on our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash our changing world. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.